Hello and welcome to the Life Teacher Podcast. My name is Hector Suko and here with me today is Ryan Baylord. Is that your name? Bayron. 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 All right. I don't know why it was, I thought Baylord. All right. I'm changing it to Baylord as of the end of this recording. <laughs> Definitely. That's better. Hello and welcome to the Life Teacher Podcast. My name is Hector Suko and here with me today is Ryan Bayron. Having dropped out or graduated, From his conservative Christian upbringing, Ryan finds his mid-30s filled with all manner of spiritual exploration, cultural critique, and a perpetual dance with the concept of intrinsic human value. An engaging and dynamic storyteller, Ryan pokes at personal and societal assumptions and norms with a solid dose of wit and snark, inviting his audiences to join him in peeling back the layers of our shared human experience with a ruthless eye and an open heart. Ryan, welcome to the Life Teacher Podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. I found you on TikTok. You have a video that really caught my attention. It was on my FYP, and it's the Post-it Notes video. So I definitely want to break that video down. And we will go ahead and start with the first question, which is the same for all my guests. Tell us, who is Ryan? It's Ryan. (laughs) The... um... You know, the funny thing is that the video that kind of put me on the map that got like several million views overnight was a video of me talking about how I have no idea who I am. Like we, we describe ourselves, we talk about ourselves, we say things about ourselves, but it's almost impossible to put to words who we really are. Like it's something that you just have to kind of experience. <clears throat> but who am I right now? I am uh, a father to who I think is the coolest kid in the world, um, husband to a pretty amazing woman and a friend to everyone I can possibly be a friend to. I've seen another TikTok video, and I'm going to pose that question to you now. Ryan, who are you to yourself? <laughs> I am being. <clears throat> there is a, there is a, um, there's a constant search in my life, like a base note that undergirds everything that I do and experience that is just... Um, a perpetual engagement with the I am within the, um, the I am that's left after I've exhausted all of the other descriptors. And and like I said, like once you've exhausted all that, you don't have language for what's left. There's something left, but we don't have language for it. Well, if we had language for it, it, you would be missing it. You know, you'd be containing it or compartmentalizing it in a way that divides it away from its wholeness. So I guess like the only word that we have for, for what that little morsel of self is at the very bottom is just, I am being. And that's what I try to do. I try to be, I try to just be. And when I'm operating that way, I feel like I am fully who I am. Thank you for your answer. And we'll go ahead and start with the post-it notes video. You start by slamming a post-it note down and you draw a straight line, vertical straight line. And on the top, you write more. And on the bottom, you write less. Mm -hmm. And then you write a straight line, horizontal, right in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. And then you say, this is where you are. You are not more than what you are. You are not less than what you are. That in and of itself had me pausing and going through all sorts of manifestations and ramifications of what that actually means. So I literally had to like pause your video because that in and of itself was very powerful. You are not more than what you are. You are not less than what you are. So I guess 
the reason why I had to pause and really start thinking about that notion is then if you are not more than what you are, and if you're not less than what you are, then what are you? Where are you? What do you see yourself as? Let's go. Let's start with that. If we are not, if we are not more or less than what we are, how can we determine where exactly we are? Yeah. So there are two ways that I see, I see people measuring this, and this is according to standards or according to people. And one of those I think is more useful than the other, because if we're talking about the, where you are, we are, we're talking about some scale and whether that's a real scale or a made up scale, it's still, it's, they're all real. You know, um, you can talk about your height. You know, there are guys who will lie about their height. <laughs> like you are not taller than you are. You're not, are not shorter than you are. There are other physical bodily metrics that men will lie about and they're they're just exactly the size that they are right and that's something that's pretty concrete pretty objective pretty pretty standard but then there's other things that are like like how masculine are you well how do you know what that is right and that was actually one of the first places that i started really exploring this idea of how how to find where i am in, in some some measurement system. It's an arbitrary one, but it's still real because people really operate that way. And there's a whole lot of societal context around how people measure up on that arbitrary scale. As, as, a, as a little boy raised to be a little boy, there was always that question of how well do you fit into the man box, right? And guys who feel like they fit in really well would flaunt that and show everybody what it looks like and say, I fit in the man box. And if you don't fit in the man box or God forbid you go into the woman box, you get made fun of for it, right? And so there's, there was this pull, especially growing up, like in my conservative Christian environment, I really wanted to fit it perfectly into the man box. And so there's, there's a scale, right? You're only as quote unquote manly as you are. You're not more manly than you are. You're not less manly than you are, but there was a fear of being less manly for fear of being made fun of and being called a girl. And there was a fear of not being manly enough. It was really, really kind of eye-opening for me to accept where I was on that scale of hyper masculine to hyper feminine. It's more feminine leaning than I wanted to be as a kid or as an adolescent or as, as a, as a young adult. And I don't, I don't cognitively have a desire to be super masculine anymore. I don't cognitively have a fear of being feminine anymore, but that stuff was programmed so, so heavily. And so early in my life, those those deeply rooted biases are really, really, really hard to get rid of. So they're still there. It's just now I have a conversation with them instead of just blindly obeying them. And so learning how to tell, how to be okay with not being more masculine than I am and not pretending to be and not trying to be and not wanting to be and not being afraid of being as feminine as I am was, was really my first foray into drawing a line and saying, I am okay with this line being here. I'm not above this line. I'm not below this line. I don't need to be above it. I don't need to be below, below it. I'm fine with this being the line. It's interesting because when I say, or when I first saw the post-it note and, and the, the when you said you are not more than what you are, you're not less than what you are. I felt that it was so abstract that you can actually put anything mm -hmm. at the top and it would be true. A, whether it's masculinity, me as a teacher, and we're both fathers, right? You and mm -hmm. and it's and I'll go ahead and, and use that as my next question to you. And let's say father, right? You are not more of a father than you are, and you are not less of a father 
than what you are. Mm-hmm. But there's a caveat to that because isn't it true that we want to strive to be a better father? Can we look at that open space on the top and say, but I want to be more. I don't want Uh to stay where I'm at. What Uh would you say to that when it comes to something like fatherhood? Yeah, that's something that I left, something that I I left out of the video. And I kind of, if I could go back and redo it, I may add that as a little caveat that this, the whole, that whole paradigm applies to a fixed point in time. I didn't really leave room in the video for the line to move. But it certainly moves. And some things, if you're not moving them up, they will move down on their own. And um, another thing is just are what they are until you address them. And, and so in a situation like that, yes, you want to improve. You want to move that line up. But at any point in time, it still is important to know where you are and to have some level of acceptance of that. If I think I'm a better father than I am, then I'm not going to try to improve to move into that space because I think I'm already there. And so there is, there is a, um, an element of improvement and growth that needs to happen, but that needs to be held in tandem with uh, a compassionate understanding of where you are and what your limits are and how, how much you've grown versus how much you have left to grow. Yeah, I definitely don't want to, you know, shoot the gun and go into arrogance right away, which is part of your video. I just want to make it clear and you definitely stated it, that it's a point in time. It's not an mm-hmm. overall arcing, this is this is it. You, you are never going to be more of a father. You are never going to be a better father than what you are. Right. De- definitely something that you pointed out, which I completely agree with, and I just wanted some context on that is, especially when it comes to something like fatherhood, is that you know it's not a sticking point. You're always going to have room to grow. You're going to have room to become a better father. And it's interesting because as you go up, I guess, and what I guess what your video was trying to say is that even if you become a better father, that graph is still going to stay stagnant, right? It's the same graph. You can level up as a dad and continue to level up, let's say five degrees better, right? You are now a, a... a five times better dad than you were yesterday or last year, but guess what? You are still not more of a perfect dad than, than you are. You are always going to have room to grow. No one's perfect. Right. Right. And there's some things like that, that, that are kind of, you kind of need to have some type of tool to bring yourself back to the present because we have a lot of examples in our culture of what a, of what a not good father looks like, but what does, what does a perfect dad look like? There's so much debate around that. As soon as we put our finger on it, new psychology comes out and we learn something about kids and then we have a new model of, of what it should be. Right. And it's kind of like a moving target. And so if you, if you try to kind of like, like put this pin on what you think perfect fatherhood is, by the time you get there, you will have moved the pin. There's no, there's no arriving. You know, and so if you think that you're moving towards something, you can certainly move away from something defined, but moving towards something is in in, in a realm like parenthood is impossible. And so you just kind of have to be with where you are and understand just what the next step looks like. You know, how many times as a dad have you acted out or has your kid's behavior sent you into your own trauma and you raise your voice in anger or something like that. And really, and you can see that it really affects them, you know, like every now and then you'll, you'll just kind of like lose yourself. And the next thing, you know, your kid has like not the whining tears, but the real tears, you know, and you know, you did that. How, how do you not beat yourself up over that? 
you know, and, and what that is, the, the fact that you're beating yourself up over it is your desire to do better. And so can you tap into that desire to do better and let that be your acknowledgement that you are actually better than you thought you were? Because how many parents will do that and not give two, two shits about it or not even notice that they hurt their kid, you know? And so you can find ways to be compassionate with yourself and, and, and bring yourself back to, to where you are. And, and the moments that you think, man, I should be more, you can remind yourself, but you're not less. I have a question for you, Ryan. Let's take something positive like happiness, right? And you say that anybody that is that thinks of themselves above the line is arrogant, right? You are not more than what you are. You just are. Now, let's take something like happiness. You are not more happy than you think you are. But if somebody thinks that they are more happy than what they actually are, is it arrogance or is it just a, a will and, and positivity that they just have around them? Interesting. So I try not to think of emotions in terms of positive and negative so much as easy and difficult or pleasurable and painful. And happiness is an easy, pleasurable emotion. And so of course we, we, type, we like to think of it as positive, but it's not, uh, I think positive kind of has positive and negative kind of has connotations with good, better and worse and the difficult, painful emotions aren't worse. We just avoid them because we're trained to avoid pain. Right. Uh, but in that sense, if, if we're talking about measuring how happy you are, another thing to point out is that we feel emotions in our bodies and our, our bodies don't lie to us. Our bodies are never in denial about what they are. There's no, that's not, that's just not how human beings work. The only part of you that lies to you is your brain. And so thinking you're happier than you are means that you're out of touch with everything below your neck. And so if you believe yourself to, if you believe happiness to be a positive emotion, you believe that you have it in abundance, but you really don't, there is an element of arrogance there because you think you have a connection with your body that you don't have. Are you saying the body in the sense of your neuropathic, your, your neural pathways and, and the fact that, you know, there's not, there's enough dopamine or serotonin in your brain that makes you feel these happy feelings? Right. Yeah. There's, I mean, that's, that's, if I were to ask you what happiness feels like, well, let me ask you, what does happiness feel like? Well, happiness means that, uh -huh. yeah, you are content with your life. You are grateful. You are in touch with reality, right? You're not conflating your emotions. You can't conflate something that you're, you're not, but I also wanted to ask you about fake it until you make it, but we'll talk that we'll talk about that next. So yeah, happiness kind of like joy from the movie inside out is I, I still think it's a, a positive emotion. I think that depression, although, and sadness, although they are necessary for life is a negative emotion. Um, but yeah, it, and it's funny because Anytime somebody were to ask me, you know, how happy are you from one to 10? I want to say 10, right? And, but I know that there's no such thing as a happy person. So I guess I am faking it until I make it. Oh, but, interesting. But yeah, I, I, I know enough about it to, to, to see that life is worth living happily and content. Life can, should not be lived in a sad state or an anxious state. 
I, I know that stress is a part of life. I understand that. And I understand that sadness is a part of life. And I, and I tend to honor those emotions and I welcome uh. them. I see them as an old friend that I haven't seen in a while. Hey, what's up? How are you? Nice to see you again. I haven't felt, I haven't seen you in a long time. And, oh, this is what it feels like. And, and, I, and I honor them and I, and I welcome them into my life. And then I said, I, I, you're going to stay a while. I understand that. And when you're ready, I will, I will show you the door. But, and I know I, I'm in those points that I am not a 10. I, I, I know that, right? And I have to honor that as well. And so that's how I see happiness. It's, it's definitely a state of mind. It, it's emotions. And, and yeah, it, it's what I feel. Ah, so then we come back to that word. <laughs> uh, I want to point out that my question was, what does happiness feel like? And your answer started with happiness means, and you riffed on some concepts of happiness. And then you said, I think, or I know, um, and that's what happiness is. And nothing you stated was a feeling. <laughs> but then at the end, you wrapped it up and said, that's what happiness feels like. And so what does it feel like in your body when you are happy? The, I know I understand the science of it. I understand that there are chemicals in the brain that release when we feel happy and we feel content. We feel the dopamine and the serotonin rushing through our bodies. And I understand that these are neural connections that are happening in our brain. And, and when that and then when that when you feel those chemicals, they are literally flowing through your body. And we know that it takes blood two minutes to, to flow around the entire body. And so I'm feeling it. My brain is feeling it. I know that my organs are receiving this. My heart will beat either faster in recognition of these chemicals. And so physically, that's what it feels yeah. like. It feels like these, these chemicals are being released in the body. And can you describe what do you feel when you feel those chemicals being released in your body? You mentioned oh, the quickening of the heart. Yes, definitely. Quickening of the heart. I'm more in tune with hearing. I, mm -hmm. I see better. I notice things. My senses are more alert. I mm -hmm. smile, genuine, genuinely smile with my, with my mouth, my eyes, my, the edges of my eyes cringe. And, and the more I do that, the more I see that happiness is contagious. And the more I see that the people that I'm with, my family, my students in the classroom, my coworkers are smiling as well. And so that there's this genuine connection that I feel as well. And that comes from that society, social need to want to be in your in-group and that people yeah. are agreeing with you and, and that you have this, again, genuine connection. Right. And so when we're talking about the original question versus someone believing that they're happier than they are, that's kind of the line of questioning I would get them to, I would take them through, which is like, what does it feel like in your body when you're happy? And then that's how you know how happy you are logically, if my body's not feeling, cause that's how, that's what happiness feels like to me too. There's a quickening of the heart. There's a lifting of the face. There's a lightness in the, in your voice. Like my voice tonality even goes up. It's easier for me to smile. I see that the same thing reflected back to me and the people that are around me. And if that's not present in my body, then I'm not happy because that's what happiness is. And so when people ask themselves, where are you on a scale from one to 10 on, on, on your happiness? If they don't check in with their body first and ask their body, what are you feeling? They just like come up with an answer based on their brain or what they think. Well, then they don't, they have no idea how happy they are. <laughs> and that's how it is with all the emotions. 
You know, you have to have the sense of interoception to be able to tell what your body is telling you and interpret that signal and then understand that if it's not happening in your body, it's not happening at all. From an What's emotional that word standpoint. you said? What's that word you in, said? In interoception. Can you spell that? Uh, it's like interception with an O after the R. Intero, I-N-T-E-R-O-ception. And essentially, that, like everybody has interoception to some degree. Like you being able to tell that you're hungry is interoception. It's your brain understanding what's, what the inside of sensations of your body are saying, right? So if you, like anybody can tell that they're nervous, like you're about to go on stage, you're nervous, right? If you haven't, if you haven't been on stage a lot, how do you know you're nervous? Is it because you know conceptually that people get nervous when they go on stage or because you have a fear? No, it's because you feel it in your chest. You have butterflies in your stomach, right? That phrase comes because people feel a feeling in their body that they then interpret as I'm nervous. When you're angry, you have a certain, your face will flush. You may feel your teeth gritting, your jaw tenses, your eyes open a little bit wider, your brow furrows, your body's telling you that you're angry. When you're surprised, when you're scared, all these emotions, your body tells you, right? And being able to recognize what your body is telling you and your brain being able to interpret that into information that's usable is interoception. And, and, so, and so in my perspective, if you don't have enough, a high enough level of interoception to know what your body's telling you, you are incapable of knowing what you're really feeling. And so all you have left is your brain that tries to reason its way into thinking it knows what it's feeling. And what are your thoughts on, quote unquote, fake it until you make it? Like, let's say I'm truly an eight happy. And mm -hmm. is there anything wrong with saying, I feel like a 10? And then who knows, maybe eventually because I'm trying to convince myself or my brain that I'm a 10, my brain will respond to that and, and start pushing these chemicals again to make me feel happy enough to logically say, yeah, it's a 10. What do you think about, and, and it goes with anything, career, masculinity, fatherhood. What do you think about faking it until you make it? So that's a phrase that I have a very love-hate relationship with. It actually got me to a place where I was more confident by faking like I was more confident. I, I used to not be very confident at all in any aspect of my being. And at some point, I, I, I don't remember where I heard this. Some public speaker was using this as an example that some, some kid decided to start asking himself, what would James Bond do? And then he just started doing what he thought James Bond would do in situations because he's super suave, you know? And then eventually he found out that he, at, after some amount of time, he was just acting more confidently in social settings without even having, he, he forgot that he even needed to ask himself that question. He was just going into the role, right? And I did something similar and it kind of worked. You know, you, you act confident and your body will know what it feels like to, to, to do that. And again, it's a bodily sensation. And so then it gets that, that track record. It gets that memory and those habits and it starts doing those things. And all of a sudden you're for all intents and purposes, just more confident. Right. Um, so there are ways I think it can be used to overcome some things, but my issue with it is there's no such thing as making it like go back to fatherhood. How do you know you've made it to perfect fatherhood? There's faking it is making it. If I do my best to act like the best father I can be, that is me being the best father I can be. And the till you make it part implies a perpetual deficit. And when you operate that way, there is an inherent lack of acceptance of where you are. And so I don't really know a way to reframe that 
that phrase into a way that that fits that paradigm better. I do think there's something to be said for adopting the posture, emotional posture that you would like to be able to assume readily and, um, and putting that into practice until it doesn't, until it no longer takes practice, you know, um, like even in Japan, there, there are studies that not studies, but there were, um, there are cases of classes, there were happiness classes that they would teach in Japan in the seventies to the nineties, where they would teach people how to be more happy. And one of the ways they would do it is tell them to put a pen in their mouth, because when you put a pen in your mouth, okay. That forces your brain to, it forces your face to smile. And what they found is that when you, when you make your face smile, it'll trick your brain into thinking that you're happy because your body's smiling. And then your serotonin levels actually go up after a certain amount of time. So it goes both ways. Your body reacts to your emotions, but your emotions also respond to what your body does. And so you can become happier by acting happier. My question is, I feel like happiness is a result. And so if you achieve, you strive for the result without striving for the cause, it's an empty result. If you want to be happy for happiness sake, what are you happy about? There are, there has to be an about. Right. And, and yeah, happiness, perfect fatherhood. These are abstract finish lines. So let's go ahead and take it into something that, that is very measurable. Someone's Mm -hmm. weight, right? And you are, you don't weigh more than what you are. You don't weigh less than what you are. And I think that's very understood when Mm -hmm. it comes to faking it until you make it comes the, this idea of manifestation, right? Where you, where you pretend, or you say to yourself, uh, okay, so let's, let's, let's throw a situation out there. Somebody weighs 230 pounds and they want to weigh 180 and manifest manifesting says, okay, think and repeat that you already weigh 180 pounds. I weigh 180 pounds. I weigh 180 pounds. And if you say your say that to yourself and think it to yourself and, and, and put that image of a fit you in your mind every day, it will have as much influence as it does to make you reach that attainable goal of being 180 pounds. But along the way, you are literally faking it until you make it. What are your thoughts on something actually attainable and that phrase? So I also have a really love-hate relationship with manifesting. <laughs> and here's, I have two, I have a two-sided answer to that. First of all, I think the mind is a lot more powerful than we give it credit for on, in one sense. And I think in another sense, in the same, at the same time, we give the mind more credit for how powerful it is. We somehow managed to do both. I remember reading of a study with weightlifting where there were three groups. There's a control group who, um, let me, let me make sure I got this right before I just rattle off all this stuff that's not real. So there were three groups of weightlifters. And for a period of time, they engaged in weightlifting practices. The control group did no weightlifting, nothing at all. Then there was another group that lifted weights as usual. And the third group physically did nothing, but spent the amount of time as they would have spent weightlifting, actively thinking about and imagining that they're weightlifting. So you're sitting there on a bench and your body is not doing anything, but you have your eyes closed and you are imagining that you are seeing your arm curling uh, dumbbells. And then you would lay down under the bench rack and you wouldn't be touching it, but you're imagining every single rep. You're imagining that you're seeing, feeling, smelling, hearing all of it, every single rep of you doing bench. And surprisingly, what they found was that the group that just sat there and thought about it 
got half the gains as the group who actually did it. From doing nothing except visualizing that it was happening. And I mean, what do we make of that? Like, that's why they try to repeat experiments, right? Just to see if it was a fluke or not. But like the simplest explanation is that when you do a thing, that signals to your body that it needs to do some recovery work. And maybe you can send that signal to do the recovery work that actually builds the muscle without actually breaking it down first. And, and that's what they think was happening, right? So there is something to be said for the brain is a very powerful motivator to get the body to do things on its own. But that being said, how many people take away from that, would, would hear that story and take away, all I have to do is sit there and think about weightlifting. And then they're sitting there eating, you know, fast food and drinking soda and just casually thinking about weightlifting, like as heavily as a daydream for five minutes a day and be like, why are I not, why am I not losing weight? Right. And if someone was in that situation, which I, there are people very close to me who have been in that situation for a long time to have a certain weight that they want it, they want to get down. They want to get that number down. And again, my question is why, what's the thing behind the thing? What is it about these numbers? What do they mean to you? And a better question is, what are you making them mean about you? Is it that I'm single and I feel like my weight is keeping people from giving me a chance? And so I want to be more attractive? Well, no, there are people who will like, who will like you exactly how you are, or who don't care how you look. You're looking in the wrong place, right? And then there's the, um, is it a health thing, right? The, health, the, the weight is an indicator of your health. Well, then pursue health and don't even look at the weight. Because if, the, if it's a fact that you're not healthy, then just get healthy and let your weight regulate itself. And if you're living healthily, your body weight will be what your body weight needs to be. And so the question is, why are you the weight that you are? Why do you want to be the weight that you want to be? And what does it really mean? And, and when you approach it that way, it's not so much that you get the weight down. It's that you expand yourself to a point where that number doesn't matter to you anymore because you found something more meaningful to care about. And what do you think about people manifesting more wealth into their life and thinking and believing that they have a certain amount of money in their bank account and they're gonna fake it until they make it, until they actually attain that amount of money? I mean, again, it's why do you wanna have that, that amount of money? I, the only thing I've found is that there are two, there are two main reasons that I, I've experienced people wanting to have more money. A, they just don't have enough to live. And really it's not that they want more money, it's that they want fewer barriers. And so is there a way to figure out exactly how you want to live? And is there a way that you can either um, use resources that maybe aren't available to you? Or I know some people who have been in a situation where their pride keeps them from using resources that are readily available to them to reduce barriers between them and how they want to live. Not to say that's people's fault. I don't want to say that poverty is the fault of the impoverished because I know some people who are really struggling and it's, they're doing literally everything they can and the system is fucking them over. Like, like it's not all you. And you're not, sometimes people, no matter what they do or how much they try, if you're born in poverty, you're 98% likely to die in poverty, right? So I want to name that um, and not just say, oh, just change your lifestyle. Stop buying those lattes because that's a really toxic message, right? Um, but there is something to be said for if you're struggling if there's a certain bar of lifestyle that you feel like you can't get reach, then it's not that you want more money and say so you want fewer barriers. And if you approach it that way, all of a sudden the number in your bank account doesn't become unimportant. It just becomes less important. Or if you have, if you have enough to live and you're comfortable, you just want exorbitant wealth. My, my question is why, what does that mean for you? Are you pursuing status? Is there something that you want to be able to do that costs more money than you have? Can you come up with a savings plan to do that? Is it that you want to be able to help people and donate or whatever? Well, can you help them with your hands instead of your dollars? 
You know, what do you want to, what do you want to do with the money that you want to have? And is there a way to do that without having to just pad your bank account? Because there are, there are $1.2 trillion in circulation. Every dollar I make is a dollar someone else doesn't have. And so if I'm comfortable and if I'm able to live and put protein on the table for my toddler and a house over our roof, a house over our roof, a roof over our heads, for me to acquire more wealth than I need is me taking money away from people who need it more. This is my own philosophy. But my question again is, why does that number matter to you? Ryan, don't you know that everybody just wants to quit their job, sit on the couch <laughs> and watch Netflix all day? I mean, I'm one on. of those people, man. I am one of those people. Come on. If we have enough money in the bank, we don't have to worry about going to work anymore and we can watch Netflix all day. I will say this. I will say this. There's a guy named Paul. Paul Strelicky. Strelicky. Is it Paul? Mm. <laughs> I gave all of his books away, so I don't have any of them. He, he wrote this book called The Why Cafe. And you're going to it's a small book. Like you can read it in one pooping if you got if you have if you're really, really mean it. Um, it changed my life. And he's written a, a bunch of several uh, several other books. Um, they're all in the self-help category. I don't really like the self-help category, but his books stand out. And he um, he has this philosophy where if you talk about what you want to do and then you say, but as in, but here's why I can't. And he, but here are the, the, the barriers that I would have to hurdle to get there. And they're, they're too insurmountable. John P. Strelecki. That's what it's not Paul. I knew there was a P. John P. Strelecki. Um, he says, you don't have a, but there's no barrier. All the barriers are in your head. You don't have a, but, but you do have a big asset. And his, his philosophy is look at what assets you do have. And how can you use them to accomplish what you're after? And in a world where it takes five minutes to set up an e-shop and you can sell literally anything, if people really do want to just sit there and quit their job, you can make up that income on the internet easily. Affiliate marketing, like it's, it's all out there. It's just a matter of learning something new or putting in a bunch of work that you're not paid for at the onset in hopes that you might start getting paid later on. And there are ways to do it. There are always ways to do it. If you have access to the internet, you can figure out how to live at home. <laughs> like, I fully believe that. And that's and that goes back to like, why? Do people feel like they have to have a certain number of dollars in the bank account so that they can just live off it for the rest of their life? Like, no, you can, if you want a certain lifestyle, figure out how to do it on the cheap, man. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a parable in one of John's books where he talks about how this young businessman goes on vacation to this, this island where he just wants to, he just wants to like live simply for a week. So he goes to where people are living simply, right? And so he stays with his family and um, hangs out with the dad because in the morning they, they, they get up and the wife goes off to do whatever the wife's doing and the kids go to school and the dad goes and he, and he, he goes fishing. So the, the, the young businessman goes fishing with him. And he's like, so what are you doing with your day? He's like, oh yeah, I, I wake up and I see my kids off. We have breakfast together and then they go and my wife goes and does whatever she's doing. And I sit on the beach and I fish for a while and then I go make lunch and now I'll come back to eat the lunch. And then, uh, you know, in the afternoon, we just hang out as a family together and um, just kind of do whatever whatever feels right. And then we all go to bed and do it again. And he was like, well, you know, you, you this, this, this fishing, like if you, if you, um, um, you could build up this fishing business pretty easily. And within a couple of years, get like a couple employees who are doing the fishing first, you wouldn't have to do the fishing. And then you could have more time to, to, you know, not have to do that part of your day. And then, you know, in eight to 10 years, you could have a fleet of fishing boats and you could have this whole empire just getting all the fish in the ocean, not, not just making enough for you, but for, for anybody else that you'd be employing, you know, you'd create all these jobs and you, you'd have all this wealth to do whatever you want. You could retire young. 
And the guy says, what would I do when I retire? He's like, anything you want. He said, so I could wake up and have breakfast with my family and see them off and then spend the morning fishing because I enjoy fishing. And then they would come in for lunch. We'd have lunch together, afternoon, do whatever we want, and then go to bed and do it all again. And he was like, yeah, yeah, you could totally do that. And the old man says, I think I'll keep my day job. <laughs> Grass is greener on the other side, isn't it? Yeah, he figured out how to create his retired life right then and there without having to go through the rigmarole of building up some type of bankroll to pay for it. And let's talk about that bottom half of that graph. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we're still talking about that graph, believe it or not. <laughs> and you said that if somebody finds themselves on the bottom, that they think that they are less than what they are, then they are filled with self-doubt. Do you think that the this self-doubt stems from depression, anxiety, or just something else? I think they have a ways of, of feeding into each other. A lot of times we look for cause and effect pathways only to find that that pathway is a loop. And um, there's, I mean, there, there's all kinds of reasons to doubt yourself. Like growing up in a conservative Christian environment, we were taught that as humans, we were fundamentally flawed and broken. And our only salvation of anything good in life came from an invisible man we could talk to, but couldn't hear. And um, that does a number on you that you don't, especially when you spend a lot of your childhood accepting it like just accepting it and believing it, <laughs> it does a number on you as far as your sense of worth and value as a person and how um, I feel like you have to work to earn anything good in this life. And even then you won't be enough. It'll just be the work you did that is enough and not you as a person. Um, we, we live in a society where our parent, the norm is for parents to punish kids for acting ways that the parents don't want them to. Even if that kid is just a different person who has different ideas of how the world should be. And then we go into school where you're graded on your academics. You're given a letter that tells everybody what you're worth. And if the letter's too low, you go into a special class to bring you up to speed. And if it's too high, you go into a special class where all these expectations are poured on you. And you're setting yourself up to be a burnt out overachiever late in life. And then, um, you know, we go into the workforce where employers are, by and large, they have the mindset that you need us and therefore, we can make you jump through any hoop. We can take advantage of you. We can break your boundaries. We can ask you to go above and beyond without paying you above and beyond. You, you, are, you are a cog in the machine. Every stage of life, there is someone in authority who's, who has the reins to our future, who gets to decide what we're worth and then tell us what we're worth. And every single one of those systems, the one in power benefits from making you believe that you're not worth as much as you are. Because God forbid you decide that you're worth better than the way that they're treating you. And so I kind of think it's both. I think it's systemic. I think it's cultural. I think it produces, produces things like depression and anxiety. And then those things in turn make you feel that way. Where you just feel like, like everybody has imposter syndrome. I have talked to people who are among the elite in whatever field they're in and they have imposter syndrome. They still feel like they're faking it when the rest of the world looks at them and says, you've made it right. And there is, there is some, some kind of like shared experience we all have of habitually believing that we are less than we are because step-by-step step, through our entire life, there was always someone more powerful than us ready to put us in our place. If we ever so much as gave credence to the thought that we might be more than they wanted us to be. And because that's the case, we all have this allergy to not believing less of ourselves. 
Like another thing, like I, I grew up, my dad is, a, my dad was a genius. My brother was a genius. Like, like I don't really pull out a stock in the whole IQ model, but they were legit the smartest people I've ever met. And then there was me who was like a slightly above average. Like whatever the bell curve is, I was just like right a little bit on the, on the upper side of it. But, you know, the gravity was pulling me back to right, like right in that middle ground, you know. And because I was in the context of those two guys, I felt I didn't feel like I was dumb. I felt like I was dumber. Like my identity became whoever is in the room. I am less smart than them. Doesn't even matter how smart I am or how smart they are. I just assumed everyone was smarter than I was. And so it's not even that you start to identify as a certain point on that arbitrary scale is that you start to identify as less, whatever it is you come across, I am less. And it depends on what you're talking about, because we've been talking about an array of different scenarios, but in actuality, your life is your life, right? Mm -hmm. And even your life can be placed on that scale. But what I'm trying mm -hmm. to get to is that every single part of your life is on that scale on its own. Mm -hmm. Fatherhood, I am not more of a father, I'm not less of a father. Teacher, I'm not more of a teacher, I'm not less of a teacher. Husband, I'm not more of a husband, I'm not less of a husband. It even, it's even hard to say hard that. that was to say. Yes. yes. <laughs> if my wife walks there in right now, she's going to say, uh, anyways, you know, mm -hmm. right. And, and it's interesting. It would be nice to, to write down all the things that you are in your life and just say that. And I think it will bring you some sort of peace, right? My, my happiness, right. I'll even say that my happiness, I'm not more happy than what I am. I'm not less happy than what I am right? Sad. Right. I'm not more sad than what I am. I am not less sad than what I am. And I think that's the gist of your video. And I think that's the gist of where you're coming from, right? You don't have more money than you think you do. You don't have less money than you think you do. You just have it your weight. You are not, you don't, you're not heavier. You're not lighter. You just are. And I think that the, the crux and the theme of your overarching explanations and all of this is no matter where you are or what you are, it's okay. Yes, it is about your relationship with where you fall on that spectrum. Not where you fall, it is your relationship with where you fall. Going back to your weight, I'm sure there are heavier people who would give an arm and a leg literally to weigh as much as you weigh. Going back to the money, I'm sure that there are people who would give just about anything to have as much money as you have, right? What is your relationship with where you fall on that line? Going back to the very beginning of this conversation, my masculinity, I always knew where I fell. I just wasn't okay with it. And learning to be okay with the line being where it is, is, is it, it's, the, it's the hardest but the most healing work that I think we can do. And one of the ways to do it is exactly what you just did is take all the categories, everything you've ever measured by or had measurement imposed on you by others and write them all down, list them all off and say those words out loud. And the ones it's hard to say, that's where your healing is. That is your compass that points you in the direction of your healing. Because again, the body knows, man, the body knows it will tell on you every single time it'll tell on you. And then you have your collection of here are the lies I've been told. Let's unlearn those. I'm going to have a conversation with my wife after this episode. Good. <laughs> I am not less of a husband than what I am. I am not less of a husband than what I am. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure she'll agree vehemently and give you all kinds of proof points 
of all the times that you were a better husband than you gave yourself credit for. And my task to you is to let those through your armor. Definitely. Because we, we build up armor against compliments. We build up armor against people thinking highly of us. If someone, if someone says something negative about us, it's like, yes, I deserve that. You're correct. Someone says something positive about us. It's like, oh, what a nice thing to say. You don't mean that. You don't see the real me. You don't really know. If only you knew. Blah, blah, blah. We have all these defenses against positivity coming our way. You know, and so the, the hard part is putting down, putting down your armor against the positive stuff, but that's the work to do, man. This concludes this episode of the podcast. Ryan and I continued this discussion with other topics. So you will be able to listen to it in the next episode. Here is Ryan stating where he can be found. Thank you for that answer. Thank you, Ryan, for coming on to my podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Ryan, tell us about you, your services, your TikTok, where people can find you on social media. Tell us everything. Oh, man. So you can find me on TikTok. On TikTok. My, my handle is the Holistic Mystic. Um, I'm thinking about changing it because there's one that I think works better, but people are already so used to that one being the thing that I think it's just a case of Bob Ross and his afro at this point. But um, so the TikTok, Holistic Mystic. I'm on Instagram. You can find me there. You can find my Instagram. I think it's R Bayron. Um, I don't really post anything there that's not on TikTok these days. <laughs> that's like my one social media outlet. Um, but other than that, I mean, everything that I've got going on is either behind me or in front of me. There's really nothing else to really uh, promote. There's a book that's on its way to getting published. There's, Excellent. Um, I have a podcast that I've, I'm on season three of. I have a co-host. It's called True North with Abby and Ryan um where my my friend abby and i talk about a lot of things that you and i talk about here and we just kind of like riff on it it's um about returning to wholeness and healing and finding your true north and choosing to follow it and we finally settled on the fact that your true north is just whatever direction points you inward back to your true self um there's what else is going on that's really it in my life as far as uh, consumables <laughs> at this point. Excellent. But, uh, and, and if you want more about me, that when, I, when it becomes available, it'll be promoted on the TikTok. So that's where to find me. Excellent. Thank you, Ryan. The title of this episode is You Are Not More or Less Than What You Are with Ryan Bayron. And that will do it for this episode of the Life Teacher Podcast. Thank you for listening. 